guest is Thomas Yeo, who comes to us from Montreal, Quebec, where he is currently the head bartender at the Atwater Cocktail Club. Thomas got his start in the industry while living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We talk with him about his progression in the industry from Halifax to Montreal, cocktail contests, and telling a story with a cocktail. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Industry Podcast. My name is Kip. With me is Dan. How's it going? Still awesome, man. Yeah. No change there. <laughs> what about yourself? Oh, I had a bit of a rough weekend. Uh, Do tell. Yeah, we had, uh, well, we're going through pandemic numbers at the speakeasy with no patio right now, so it's not exactly booming business. We had a big uh, um, rum tasting booked, and uh, the night before... We give out scrunchies with one of our cocktails as like a garnish, and uh, some idiot flushed it down the toilet, and <laughs> my toilets blew up and flooded the bar on three separate occasions, which is was fun time. So we ended up having to cancel the whole Saturday night, and uh, yeah, anyone listening to this, don't don't be a fucking idiot. Don't flush shit down the toilet. I don't understand this these random acts of vandalism, like. Uh, Fueled by alcohol, I'm sure. So. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I, I guess it's my own fault for serving them. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's enough about my issues. This is, we're doing a show here. Yeah. Um, the housekeeping. Let's get it out of the way. If you like what we're doing, please, we implore you, subscribe, rate, and review to the Industry Podcast. Um, you can get it wherever you listen to your podcast. Obviously, you would know that because you're listening now. The if you are a member of the service industry or any way connected and you think you have a story you'd like to share, then DM us at the Industry Podcast. Uh, also, once again, a shout out to Zach Hanna for all the amazing artwork. Yes. It's at Zach Hanna, Z-A-K Design. Um, you can reach out to him if you need any work done because he's phenomenal. Yeah, and it's always mentioned in the show notes at the end as well if you're looking for him. So if there's more information there, get the spelling correct. Okay, we have uh, yet another amazing guest. That's what we do on the mm-hmm. Industry Podcast. Another amazing guest, Thomas Yeo from Montreal, originally from Halifax. How you doing, buddy? Very good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for doing it. Um, let's, let's get the uh, particulars out of the way at the beginning. It was kind of like this is the way we have to do it now. How, how are things in Montreal regarding COVID? Are you guys open? What's happening? Yeah, so, I mean, Montreal was kind of the hot spot in Canada, uh, right. still is to a certain degree, um, but we actually opened earlier than a lot of the other major cities um so as of march 22nd we were able to open again uh, really? oh wow yeah reduced capacity socially distancing we had to put up plexiglass dividers and all that but uh oh. we dove in right from the get-go so I, we got the notice about a week before the 22nd uh the owner called me he's like can you have the bar open in a week and I was yeah like, that that's the uh, same. okay well uh, we'll do it so we opened on the 22nd 10 hours a day seven days a week uh, five to three, right out of the gate, and uh, it's it's been busy. Like, and it's all indoor, all indoors there. All indoors, like right. basically the underground speakeasy style. Oh, uh, so yeah, same as my bar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Well, I, well, I'm glad that you guys are busy because like we, uh, the problem we're having is it's still nice outside, people, and yeah. so we're already fighting the notion that people want to be sitting on patios at this time of year and then you add the fear of covid on top of that and it's like this fuck man i can shoot a cannon off in my bar on like a saturday night right now and not risk harm to any individuals (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny we've taken a bit of a hit on the weekends obviously because on the weekends we would typically be at full capacity virtually all night um 
But early week when we're normally not at full capacity, we're doing similar numbers to this time last year. Oh, okay. um, the summer is always kind of our slow time. Same thing, no patio, no windows, dark kind of cave-like room. Mm -hmm. uh, so the rush comes late. Uh, we have virtually nobody from 5 to 10, and then the sun goes down, the patio is empty, and we fill up, and we're rocking. It's, yeah, it's funny. I didn't realize that. Um, like, So the bar I owned before, this one was not a speakeasy. This one is, and the same thing. It's in a basement. It's There's no windows. It's like dark. Much. It sounds like similar, except I saw some pictures of your bar online, and wow. Spectacular. It's gorgeous. <laughs> uh, so I'm not comparing mine to yours by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but uh, I will say that I didn't realize that in like in reality, I was opening a nightclub. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The clientele has changed a little bit, mm -hmm. especially since recently they... Ah. So they, they let restaurants open, but because we... Uh, so we basically... It's like we have a sister business that we share a kitchen with. So we come off sort of one street and then they're on the opposite corner uh, and the kitchen's in the middle. So we have doors into the kitchen from both uh, both places. They're purely a restaurant. We're sort of a bar. I mean, in uh, our soul is a speakeasy, but we serve food from the, from the restaurant. Right. Um, so because of that, we have a joint restaurant bar license, which allowed us to open right away when they opened the, the restaurants. A couple weeks later, they opened bars, but then cases started to go up a little bit and they instituted a new policy that all bars have to stop serving at midnight and everyone has to be out at one unless you're also a restaurant then you can serve till three but everyone has to have food on their bill so it's all very complex we've been trying to navigate it all but what the fuck the, sense does that any of that make though <laughs> <laughs> i'm concerned that drunk people would be less likely to respect oh. the guidelines and that if at least you have something in your belly you're less likely to get as drunk ah. um i guess that so a pack of lifesavers <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we kind of researched what the bare minimum qualification for a meal was, and we've made these uh, kind of pre-made lunch boxes, so we don't have to keep the kitchen staff there until uh, oh, three. Cool. We sell them below cost. It's five bucks added to your bill automatically when you come in. You get your little lunch box, and then we operate like we always have. Oh, that's smart. Uh, okay, so we should mention, since we could have sort of dove right into this, that we were talking about the Atwater Cocktail Club in Montreal, which uh, it's was voted, what, the... Number three bar, top, three, top, yeah, top bar in Canada, and then yeah. what? I saw on the website too that they're also advertising top ten in the Americas. Yes, yeah, so we got a Tails nomination for uh, best uh, North American cocktail bar uh, in, in the top ten. Um, it was a nomination for top ten. We just didn't squeak into the top. Oh, 10. okay. Yeah. Well, fuck that. Even being nominated—that's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> that's yeah. crazy. But number three bar in Canada, and you are currently the bar manager. Yeah, uh, head bartender, bar manager. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, so it's uh, basically in charge of the bar. Yeah, so we used to have a GM, uh, and now there's kind of me running the bar side and a floor manager running the floor side. And between the two of us, we sort of make up what the what the GM used to be. Right. Uh, I wonder, I, that's interesting you brought that up, because I know of a lot of places, just even locally here, where they have like sort of a, oh, it's just an inflated management team like and and then i wonder if this pandemic is when people are having to make cutbacks and we're at reduced capacity etc they're going to realize like there's a lot of these people that they're paying that 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 job could easily be dispersed between people who are who are more necessary on yeah, their staff absolutely. right like uh i know like 
I have a manager at my bar, but what's really, it's just down to like two or three of us working right now. But um, like the, the place I worked right before I opened this bar, uh, in between selling the last bar and then trying to get this one open, um, they have like a few restaurants, but they have like, um, like just an overinflated management staff, like a GM for each place, an assistant GM for each place, a HR manager. Like, it's like, can't all of these jobs be done by one person? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I, me and the other manager both still work service, so I still work the bar four nights right. a week. Um, and because we're open five to three every day, and we kind of want to have one of the managers closing there at close most nights. Uh, we're kind of looking for an assistant manager right now because I'm too old to be there till six in the morning, uh, three, four, <laughs> right. nine. Right, uh, and, and that's fair. Yeah, like something like that. Like if, yeah. You when you're, when you're up all night, so. yeah, and uh, talk to me a little bit about, well, we're going to dive into a little bit of your time in Halifax. I know that's where you started out, but um, yeah. the, talk to me a little bit about this transition that you've had from like being a bartender and a competitive bartender into the management side. Like, what do you like about it? What do you hate about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been great. It's been a learning curve. Uh, I had done, uh, I, I was the head bartender at a spot I worked at in Halifax, um, but that was sort of the first serious bartender job I had. Uh, I kind of bluffed my way through the interview. They needed a bartender to open the following day, and they're like, can you be here at 6 tomorrow? Uh, I made them like a pretty awful watermelon mojito or something, and they're like, yeah, that'll do. Come in tomorrow. Um, <laughs> So I had a bit of experience in, in a management role, but not in a program of the size or, or the caliber uh, that I'm at now. And I actually got kind of lucky with the way the staffing worked out. So I moved up to manager pretty quickly after starting at uh, ACC. So it was very much a throw you in the deep end and uh, hopefully you learn to swim kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's made me get a lot better at sort of managing people, delegation, organization, that kind of thing. But it's pulled me a little bit away from the... Uh, like the, the nerdy cocktail wonk menu creation kind of side of things that I, that I really enjoy. So I'm right. working towards finding that balance again. Um, we've got a really great team in place now, so I'm able to delegate some things that, that free up a little bit more of my time to focus on. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because I think a, what a lot of people don't realize happens is you start it. And I think it's the same with people who become like executive chefs. I've never worked in a kitchen, but we've gotten that impression from people who've been on the show and just like me working with people. But the, how you move into that sort of executive role and you spend so much of your time doing kind of paperwork shit and like, uh, yeah. and then it kind of pulls you away from the sort of the creative aspect of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about, okay, so that's, this is the Outwater Club. It's, it's, um, it's a speakeasy in Montreal. Um, obviously, um, what does talk to me a little bit about some of these awards, like the number three bar in Canada, whatever? How does that does that directly and almost immediately affect your business? So I think it would have more if COVID hadn't happened, right. uh, because tourism is pretty much effectively shut down right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nobody's really traveling to come see us. Uh, right. what is, like so, we were number five last year, um, and after the list came out, we did notice a little bump um, from within Canada and a little bit from the states and abroad of people. If they were in Montreal, they wanted to come see us. Sure. Yeah. Um, so COVID has kind of put a damper on that a little bit, but it's still a nice pat on the back, especially for me. I was a little stressed out because I took over right when we got named number five last year. Oh right? yeah. Like, okay, so this year's on me. We better. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you moved up, so congrats, that's great. Uh, 
So, uh, who's like who makes this list? Um, it's a collection of it's, it's a little murky. It's kind of a yeah. shadowy uh, industry society, but it's kind of uh, <laughs> industry leaders in various parts of the bar industry across Canada. Uh, it's basically it's not like uh, public choice. Um, they, they have a committee of kind of industry experts, so to speak, okay. uh, who vote on it. Yeah. Okay, well, Sugar Run, Kitchener, Ontario, shameless plug, just throwing it out there for next year's list. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, let's let's dive in a little bit to like how you got started in the game here. Uh, so your first job is in Halifax. Uh, is that where you grew up? No, so I grew up just outside of Ottawa on the Quebec side. I'm oh, okay. uh, one of the rare Anglo-Quebecers, uh, <laughs> right, right on that Quebec-Ontario border. Um, so my first bartending job was actually at a kind of family Italian restaurant in Ottawa. I didn't even really bother bother to list it because it was, uh, I was listening to Aaron Hatchell's uh, episode before we, uh, yeah. up, and he was talking about the whole man Montana's thing and it was very similar. Like there's a bar spoon there but nobody knows what it's for. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that people are making old fashions like the Wisconsin old fashioned with like muddled uh, orange and, and all that kind of thing. Like the cocktail list to the extent that it existed, hadn't been updated in 30 years. Um, but that kind of got me interested in the industry at least a, li- a little bit, even though it wasn't a super high caliber spot. Can, uh, I, ask you a quick, can I ask you a quick question? Uh, yeah. Not to cut you off there, but I what uh, did you call that a Wisconsin old fashioned? Yeah. What, where does that come from? I've never heard so that I, before. I had heard, like, so it's a super old school way of making an old fashioned where you muddle like maraschino cherry, an orange slice, sugar, Add the whiskey and ice, and then top it with a splash of soda. And that's what um, that's called in Wisconsin. Old apparently, yeah, I, uh, I seen it and I like did a little research, and yeah, apparently it's called a Wisconsin old fashioned. So it's like you just pair it with like a hunk of Swiss cheese, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, I feel like that's how Don Draper made them, but <laughs> yeah, very, very Madison Avenue kind of yeah, forties, fifties vibe kind of thing. Okay, so uh, what what uh, brought you to Halifax then? So I went out there to do a master's degree, actually. Oh, okay. I, I did my undergrad in uh, Montreal, kind of. Then uh, did the, the final year of my undergrad in South Africa, actually. I was studying uh, history uh, with a focus on African and colonial history. Oh, wow. Uh, and Quebec has a great uh, system where if you're a university student from Quebec, going to school in Quebec, and you have the grades for it, they will essentially pay you to go abroad for a semester. Um, So you pay the same tuition you would at home and they give you a living allowance. Um, So it's like, why not? Uh, The most requested places to go were like, hey, Australia kind of thing. And I was like, well, I'm going to go somewhere for six months. I want to go somewhere that takes me a little bit out of my comfort zone. So somewhere that's very different day to day than than where I grew up. Um, Plus I had that sort of academic interest in it. so did that and then took uh, three months at the end of the semester. Uh, a buddy of mine from Montreal came to meet me. We bought an old truck and we spent three months road tripping up through Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Malawi, and Mozambique. So that was a really, really That's amazing. Uh, we got stranded all over the trip place. The truck was a piece of shit. It was like this Russian 4x4, uh, a Lada. Uh, oh, a Lada. Yeah, a Lada. It must have been easy to get parts down in South Africa for that. <laughs> uh, so we got like stuck in the sand in a safari park with like elephants all around us. People had to pull us out. We had all sorts of adventures. Um, did you, um, 
uh, sorry, just uh, did you learn? Did you like? Were you checking out the bar scene while you were there? Did you did you bring anything back with you that helped you in your current career? Uh, a little bit, but I didn't sort of realize it until later. Uh, so, so at this point, this was before that bartending job in Ottawa. Uh, right. When I got back from the trip, I was really indebted. So I moved back sure. to my parents' house for a little bit and uh, got that job in Ottawa to, to save a little money uh, and get ready to do my master's degree. Um, years later, though, like competing in world class and stuff like that, I've done sort of South African-themed cocktails. I, I try to create cocktails that evoke a sense of place. So like... Uh, what grows together goes together and incorporating kind of culinary traditions, flavor profiles that are often combined in the dishes of different places. Yeah, so you're cool. not just getting flavors that work together, but it's, it's giving you a sense of, of experience of place when you drink it. Okay. So it did come in. I just I didn't realize it until later. Right. It's kind of like something that's just like immersed into you at some point and then it comes out later when you need it. Uh, yeah, exactly. A lot of life works that way, actually. So, yeah, you so you. Then you go to do your master's at, in Halifax, uh, and that's when you decide to maybe start working in the industry. I don't know if this is the point where you're, okay, maybe this is something I might want to do for a while, or are you still just like working at a bar and so you can go to school? Yeah, well, so the first gig, I basically blew through all my coursework. I was working as a TA at that point, so I didn't really need, need a side job. But then when it came to the thesis, I kind of hit a hit a little stumbling block. Uh, the more I researched, the more I, I was focusing on governance in Africa, and the more I researched it, the more I realized the last thing they needed was another privileged white guy to come and tell them how to run their country. Oh, yeah. uh, so I became kind of increasingly disillusioned and demotivated with my, uh, my thesis. Um, so I got a job at this little Greek place that my girlfriend was working at, um, just a handful of tables, uh, mom and pop kind of thing. You were the bartender and the server. And I, I never really thought I was going to go back to the industry. I mean, I enjoyed it when I was in Ottawa, but uh, that, that's not where I saw my career going. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I worked there for a little while while still sort of telling myself that I was going to get this thesis done and get my master's degree and, and work in the field somehow. Um, but then there was a spot opening right across the street from my girlfriend's apartment. And I see it every morning, see them kind of building it out. And it was like, this looks like a cool spot. Like a sort of Southeast Asian gastro pub kind of kind of vibe, um, and I was like, "Yeah, when it looks like it's almost ready to open, I'll, I'll go drop a resume." And then I was leaving one morning, and uh, they were doing a staff training. I was like, "Shit!" Uh, <laughs> <I missed my> <laughs> <time>. <laughs> yeah. So I printed out a resume real quick, ran over, and was like, "You looking for a bartender or whatever?" And they're like, uh, "Yeah, we'll take a look at the resume this weekend and get back to you." They didn't get back to me. I'm, I'm persistent. So I went back on Monday. I, I sort of saw them sitting in there. I was like, hey, did you see that resume? Like, what, what do you think? They're like, well, we didn't look at it, but uh, hop behind the bar and make us a few drinks. So oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That's a, See, that's interesting because I have done that once or twice with like a bartender and be like, oh, test you out. And I find sometimes that works great and sometimes it doesn't tell you anything. So, Yeah. yeah. Well, they at this point, I didn't really know what I was doing. I, I, <laughs> uh, an aggressively mediocre uh, watermelon mojito and a whiskey sour that didn't really have the egg properly emulsified. Um, uh, but it, was, it was enough to squeak through because they were opening the following day. So I got the job. Um, and then, and what's, a, what's a Southeast Asian gastropub? Just for <laughs> yeah, so it was, a, it was a couple that owned it. Um, there was a chef who was actually quite well-known in Halifax. He'd done some really, like, kind of avant-garde, like, haute cuisine, sort of chef's table kind of vibe stuff. And then his partner 
Uh, it was this woman from Cambodia. So she had run a Cambodian food stall in, in the market in Halifax. And they got together, kind of planned out this concept. But he did most of the cooking, but it was largely inspired by her recipes. So we did like ramen and banh mi and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he was a super, super talented chef. It was really inspiring to, to work with him. There wasn't much of a cocktail program there when I started, but I'm sort of a firm believer in uh, do the job you want. So right. I started experimenting with things, trying to put together a bit of a cocktail list. And they, to their credit, they realized that I, I was passionate and I was interested, even though at this point I was still telling myself I was going to finish that master's degree. Right. Uh, so, so they got me some support. Uh, kind of two of the OG bartenders in Halifax have a little event and consultancy called the Clever Barkeep. Uh, so they brought them in for a month and they worked with me two days a week for a month to kind of redesign the bar space, put together a, a Kiki Wednesday program, do a new cocktail list. And then at the end of that, they sort of just uh, made me the head bartender and handed me the keys to it. And I, I ran with it for the next year and a half. Oh, wow. Uh, you brought up something interesting there. Um, the, so in my lengthy and not very storied career in this business the um the one thing that like people wanted to kind of get out of the business and move to do a different thing for a long time it was like oh, i'm gonna go be a teacher and then it became real estate agent and it was like it was always the job the certain job that the bartender or server went to and then more recently people are getting a little more creative and i've noticed a real trend towards going into this consulting like yeah. for bars and restaurants and i'm Tell me, so I, so for, I've never known anyone to actually come to a bar and consult. So having gone through that yourself uh, on the other end with being the one who's being consulted, mm -hmm. did you find that valuable? Yeah, it was incredibly valuable. Oh, okay. um, they're, they're both two um, really, uh, really kind of influential people in the scene there. And Halifax is like, I couldn't imagine a better place to start your career as a, as a young bartender. Super, super tight knit, super small, but incredibly supportive. Uh, there was like monthly kind of, we called it uh, Monday school. So the last Monday of every month, kind of one of the OGs would uh, gather everyone together at the liquor store. We'd have a little classroom in the back, do like a seminar on the, on the style, talk about ways to use it, uh, production methods, history, all that kind of thing. It was a really supportive environment. And having them come in, like the bar was not properly set up for cocktail service uh, before they came in. I mean, it wasn't great even afterwards, but they, they made it functional. Right. And I wouldn't have had any idea how to even kind of begin to do that before they came in. Okay. As well as kind of teaching me the basics of, of prep. Uh, or not even just the basics. Like, we started doing flash infusions, making our own falernum, orgeat. So all these techniques that I was then able to take that technique and, and get creative with down the road. So, oh, so they're yeah. legitimately turning you into like a cocktail bar now. Yeah, like, Oh, wow, that's yeah. interesting. Okay, so, um, yeah, so I guess really it's just the motivation of whatever the the um, bar or restaurant is. Is like, is that what they want? Do they want? Yeah, yeah. And you need to have the staffing place to teach, right? Because if you don't have a passionate person who can kind of take lead on what they're laying down you're wasting your money because they come in, they teach people who are going to be there for another few months, maybe uh, high turnover in this industry. Mm. So you have to have that, that person in place that's going to absorb the knowledge that they're right. telling you. And the setup is um, something we haven't really talked about a whole lot on the show either. Like talk to us a little bit about how proper, the proper bar setup, either from the build of a bar to the beginning, if you've ever had any um, experience with that, or just even someone coming in and showing you how to properly set things up, like what a difference that makes and, and 
what uh, what are some of the maybe basics of like what needs to happen? Yeah, so I mean, I guess it sort of depends on what kind of service you're going for. So like this this first place compared to ACC or other places I've worked at is completely different. Uh, ACC is like the top of the line game console of, of cocktail making. Like everything is at your fingertips. Everything's laid out. We've got 21 bitters on the ra- on each, so two rails. Uh, 21 bitters, 19 syrups, 55 bottles on each rail. Like it's designed to crank out cocktails at a high volume. Uh, everything's within arm's reach kind of thing. Whereas this first place was a little L bar, maybe 10 by 10 feet, eight seats, two bartenders back there, an oyster trucking station essentially on top of your well, which is a little plastic cooler. Not at all food fit. Uh, it, was, it was an absolute nightmare. Your only sink was over my left shoulder. So I got in this habit of clicking my jigger over my left shoulder. And um, I was in a competition once and the judge was just like, why are you doing that? And I was like, <laughs> Shit, that's where my sink normally is. He's like, yeah, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's really just sort of about setting up for the style of service you're looking to do um, and and having your mise en place so everything's easily easily reachable uh, when you need it. Yeah, and when you're in the weeds and like you're getting fucking killed behind the bar like that, like having things in the area that they're supposed to be is so vital. And I don't know I'm, if this has happened to you, but I've worked with so many bartenders in my career where like, they just don't put shit back where it was supposed to go. Like if you're behind the wood with somebody else, it, doesn't that drive you mental? Like just, and you go, yeah. cause you, you, it's muscle memory, you know where it is and then, and you're busy and it's like fucking on the other side of the bar or some shit. Like yeah. they just didn't put it back. Oh man. That's... Well, it's funny. One of my kind of mentors in Halifax, the guy who ran that Monday school thing, one of his tips was switch up your mise en place for longevity. So he was basically like, move your mise en place around so you're not doing the same repetitive motions day after day after day. Oh, yeah. You won't mess your body up as much. But I'm like, I don't know, my body's getting a little messed up, but not to the point where I'm willing to do that yet. Yeah. Well, my body's messed up enough that I just pretty much stay away from behind the bar now. And like, if I'm, if I'm working at at my bar, I'm, I'm on the floor as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Like it's worse on my legs, but my arms and neck and stuff are in better shape now. (laughs) My shoulder goes out once every six months. Oh yeah. mm -hmm. Pop a lot of muscle relaxants, slap a little heat pad on there and go to work. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And shake away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's, uh, from there you go to um, this place called the Highwayman. Yeah. And uh, you're, uh, you're obviously high on this place. So tell us all about it. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's kind of a Basque tapas style uh, cocktail bar. Um run by two two kind of high school friends who decided to open a bar together, uh, I think probably five or six years ago now, but just small team, super, super passionate people, everything kind of made from scratch in-house from the ground up. Uh, and they kind of taught me, so because my intro to cocktails was a little bit on that tiki side of things, uh, I had a bit of a tendency to overcomplicate things. And if, if it didn't taste right, add something else. Right. Add something else and it just gets muddy. And they kind of taught me to go from a bit more of a classical uh, template. Uh, if, if it doesn't taste right, take something out um, and keep it to not an insane number of ingredients. Sim- simplicity is is valuable. Um, uh, so I, can, I can't agree with that more. I, yeah. I really can't. That's, that's the key to cocktails now, man. Everybody's just, we talk about this a lot on the program, but like there's too many people just like smashing too much shit into one glass. But, exactly. And you're not getting any of the flavors anymore. You're just getting a jumbled flavor. 
No, exactly. And I mean, restrictions breed creativity too, right? Like if they tell you, you can't use more than five ingredients, you have to really think about each of those ingredients rather than just kind of haphazardly chucking stuff into it and hoping it works out. Yeah. Um, so they kind of uh, molded my, my philosophy, or at least the philosophy I try to follow now uh, a lot. And just super great team. Uh, I, I was really close with the chef. Uh, the, the food was absolutely spectacular. Um, so got to know him. Uh, started sort of using some of the techniques that he was using, incorporating them into the bar program. Um, in Montreal, we have an ice merchant who brings us uh, three 50-pound blocks of clear ice a week, pre-cut king cubes, pre-cut column spears. But there we were making it all ourselves in a, in a deep freeze in the basement. So you'd cut it all to hand before service. Um, so it's just a slightly different style. And I, I, as much as I love ACC, I kind of miss that slightly slower uh, style of service where you can really take the time to talk to your guests, explain why you're passionate about what you're doing, as opposed to just cranking things out at, at full speed. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, the, this, it, the same situation happens at my bar now. We didn't really expect it. And that's why I say like, I, I accidentally opened a nightclub. Like we're pumping cocktails out like, well, not these days, but like back when, before pre-COVID when we were actually busy, the, you're pumping out cocktails, but like, that's great if you're making vodka sodas and cracking yeah. cans of beer, but when you're when you're crafting cocktails and you're doing it at nightclub style service, talk to me a little bit about the challenges of that because we're going through it. Well, so it's funny we actually almost had a reverse problem because when they introduced this whole bars have to close unless they serve food rule, we became one of only three bars in the city that's open till three. Mm. So our clientele has changed dramatically. All the people who would normally be in clubs come to see us at midnight. So I've done services over the past couple of weeks where I start at 10 and work till three and I make like three, four cocktails the whole time. Oh, Mind you, wow. we're selling $1,300 bottles of Cristal, just bottles of Hennessy, like double Hennessy's flying, flying out of the bar. Uh, so the money's good, but it's not exactly the kind of bartending that, that I like to do. The funny thing is we realized that we've tweaked our bar so well to put out high volume cocktail service that we're not properly set up to pump out 8 million shots and 100 vodka sodas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bottles of champagne on bottles of champagne on bottles of champagne. So even simpler things, if your bar is not specifically set up for that, can become a challenge to, to put out in high volume. Yeah, um, that, that's true. I never really thought about that way. Like if it's all so much about how the bar is set up, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so let's get into a little bit of some of your competitive bartending uh, background. When, when did you... Were you involved in that in Halifax? Yeah, so I got started in that in Halifax. Uh, like I said, it was a super supportive scene. Um, didn't get as, it's starting to now, but when I was getting started out there, it didn't really get as much love from the brands as some of the bigger cities. Um, but then when they kind of clued in that it, it was a really passionate group of bartenders, uh, we started getting a lot more master classes and that kind of thing, and they were very, very well uh, attended. Um, so one year, and this was maybe six months into me starting at that, that uh, Southeast Asian gastropub kind of place. So I was just getting my feet wet in the kind of craft cocktail thing. They had a world-class seminar uh, in Halifax, which had uh, Caitlin Stewart, who was the global winner from a couple of years ago, uh, Lauren Mote, who was the Canadian winner, and world-class global cocktailian, uh, also the founder of uh, Bitter Sling Bitters, so just like a huge name in the cocktail scene in Canada. Um Grant, uh, no, I don't think Grant was there, but had a whole bunch of previous Canadian winners. 
So we were all just kind of completely starstruck, all these huge names in the industry. They did, it was like a six hour seminar. They did all these little modules on, on really cool techniques and, and how to pair flavors. And I was totally inspired, but I was like, this is like, I'm not ready for this. Um, and I had a chat with Lauren afterwards and she was like, man, like, I didn't think I was ready the first time either. All you got to do is submit a recipe. Like, what do you have to lose? Just, just go for it. Um, so I did. I submitted a recipe and I got through to the video interview section. I think that they took it down to 50 people, got a video interview, um, got through that to the regionals in, uh, I think they were in Toronto that year. So the Eastern regionals is put it between the East half of the city and uh, East half of the country and the West. So I think there was 12 people in the East, 12 in the West somehow got through that, uh, very much, uh, on a wing and a prayer. I was, uh, definitely not as technically proficient as a lot of the other bartenders, but I was, uh, like to think audacious. Uh, I did a aluminum clarified milk punch in my speed round, uh, wow. so from start to finish in six minutes, uh, on a side martini cart. Uh, okay. Just why for anyone who's listening, who doesn't know exactly what you're talking about, walk us through the process of making that specific drink. Yeah, so, I mean, a, a classic clarified milk punch, you'd infuse all your spirits for a day or two with spices, tea, uh, pineapple, all that kind of thing. And then you add milk and an acid, typically uh, lemon juice, to it. The acid splits the milk between the milk solids and the whey. And then you pass it through a fine strainer a, a couple times. And as the milk solids stick to the strainer, they form a very, very, very fine uh, strain. So you get a product that's completely clear, but maintains all the flavors of the original. So you can pass something that's like cloudy and purple and it comes out clear with maybe a pinkish tint to it. Um, so doing it table side was a, was a little intense. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'd never done it before I did it in front of the judges. Like oh, I sure, could, that's the way to do it. it. Don't, don't practice it at all. Let's go for it. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's crazy, man. And so, and how did you do? Uh, so I made it through the uh, the regionals, uh, and then I kind of tanked at the nationals a little bit. Uh, I got there, and uh, I was it was amazing just to be in the prep room with those 10 bartenders, because they were all mm. people with years and years of experience. The stuff they were doing was super inspiring, like people working with fermentation, with all these techniques that I had only heard of. Um, so it was a great experience for that, but I think uh, I got a little cocky having pulled off my uh, audacious plans for the regionals. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it wasn't my best showing, but I, I came back determined to do well the next year. Uh, so and then the next two years, I made it to the nationals, was top four last year, and wow. qualified again this year before it got canceled because of COVID. But uh, no, I'm gunning for that national win one of these days. Yeah, so when you go through the different rounds, just for people who don't know, is it, uh, are you making a different cocktail for each round, or you keep, do, you, do you use the same one? Yeah, so there's different styles of competitions. Uh, like I've done, uh, I, I did the Bacardi Legacy Nationals a couple of years ago as well, which is one cocktail and like a whole promotional campaign to go with it. And you, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that that cocktail and that kind of spiel about it and the, the promotional campaign follows you right from the, the first entry you do up to the regionals and the nationals and the globals if you make it that far. World class is a little different, and that's why I love it. Uh, you make a submission cocktail you answer like a questionnaire there's like a little essay question about kind of your bartending philosophy and all that kind of thing but then once you make it to the regionals they give you the challenges maybe a month in advance and depending on the year there's been between two and four challenges at the regionals and they're all completely different so there's like a speed round um for example the the, the, the milk punch thing was a 
martini card challenge where you had to make one classic martini and one future martini, what you thought a martini might look like in the future. Mm. Um, so the milk punch one was my future martini thing. Um, so they really test every element of being a bartender. Uh, I describe it as like the most in-depth uh, bar interview you could ever have. Right. Uh, at the Nationals last year, they had like interview uh, challenges where you did a, a TV interview on the peak to peak gondola at Whistler. Um, they had like a blind tasting challenge where you had to identify five classic cocktails and the base spirit in them. And they really messed with us. They gave us a vodka martini, split base, kettle one and Ciroc. Oh, and Jesus that, Christ. How yeah. are you supposed to do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it really tests like everything you could, like the hospitality side, the, the technical side, the, everything, the palate side. Yeah. That's interesting. That's kind of cool. I, I, uh, so I have a few questions about that. First of all, like nobody got that Ciroc kettle one thing, right? I don't think so. No, no it's impossible. Like, <laughs> vodka tastes like vodka. <laughs> it was a vodka martini, and that it was like a little off, but uh, right. And also, who wants a drink that's mixing two different vodkas together? Yeah, Unless one of them is flavored, I guess, or yeah, something. Yeah, just kind of throws a curveball. Yeah, uh, and then so out of all the, the all of those things that they're testing you on, and, and I like the, I guess I like the way that they focus it because it is testing sort of all the skills of a bartender, but mm. we all do the job. We don't all like every aspect of the job. Yeah. So uh, which, which parts do you like and which parts do you like for, just as an example, like I, I've talked to a bunch of people who've done these competitions and it, mostly people hate the speed round because the, yeah, that's not myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, cause that's not kind of why you're into craft cocktailing, right? Yeah. Like, now, obviously, I I have also witnessed and worked with people who are unbelievable at crafting a cocktail, but would die a quick death behind my bar because of volume. Yeah, and they just can't keep up. So that is obviously a skill you need as a bartender. But uh, so to, I mean, I guess just talk to me about the stuff you. Which parts of those competitions do you like? Which parts do you hate? Yeah, so I, I really enjoy the, the hospitality side of it. They, they really push that. Um, so, like, you, you have to think of not just the drink you're making, but everything that goes into the experience surrounding that drink. So all of your senses, obviously. Um, I've seen people bring sort of aromatics, like put a pan of spices on a little hot plate behind their bar so that the room smells like something that's going to complement the cocktail. I've uh, brought out candles and put mood lighting all around the judge's table before one of my rounds. Yeah. So really kind of leaning into that, that hospitality side that you realize is so important when you're managing a bar, like music, lighting, ambiance is, is all key to the way a guest experience is what you're putting out. It's all part of it. Yeah. Um, and then I, I love the technical side, um, using crazy techniques, getting super creative, making cocktails that I couldn't necessarily put out in the high volume kind of environment that I work in. So it's kind of, a great creative outlet for me. I, I can do the weird nerdy shit that most people don't really care about, uh, aren't so interested in, but I, I get off on it. And being in a room of other people who do as well and uh, seeing what they're all doing as well is really, really cool. Um, yeah, so like the, the technical side, the, the, the networking, it's incredible for networking. Now I know sort of the, the lead people in the industry all across the country. Um, and you, you see there are certain bartenders kind of on that competition circuit and you start bumping in them. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then you bounce ideas off each other, you get inspired by each other. 
Um, so yeah, the, the people, the, the creativity, I, I like working on a time crunch and under pressure as well. Um, I'm not the most organized person, but I'm definitely the kind of person who, if I have something I need to do and I need to not sleep for three days to get it done, that that's just what I'm going to do. Right. Um, yeah. Well, that's what a lot of school will teach you. <laughs> uh, so when you're in these competitions, the other thing that I get a lot of, or I hear a lot about um, when we're talking about these competitions is the potential politics of the judging of it. Like, are, are these, certainly in the local, like, we were in a, one of my bartenders was in a competition locally, and uh, he, after, he spent all his fucking time making this really cool cocktail, he had, like, put it in, like, a mini Coke bottle, and, like, it was, like, like a lot of shit that went into it, right? And then he tried to explain it to them that they needed to mix it up because he he put the syrup at the bottom because yeah. to make it look that way and whatever. And they clearly didn't listen to him and they just drank it and were like, Oh, so uh -huh. sweet. And then he found out later that, um, somebody overheard one of the judges before the competition even started saying, so, so-and-so we're going to give it to so-and-so. Right. And oh, I'm like, okay. yeah. So now that's something that happens like in a shitty little local competition, mm -hmm. but like, and what makes that competition shitty. But, the I'm assuming something like that. Does, does anything like that happen at like these more, sort of serious global competitions or do you do you feel like it happens i mean i i've done fairly well so i like to think it doesn't but yeah uh, sure yeah yeah <laughs> fair enough <laughs> um, but i mean there's always a little bit of grumbling about that kind of thing like uh three out of the seven canadian winners for world class have come from uh, the botanist pacific rim in vancouver um so there is some grumbling about that kind of thing but I, I don't think it's necessarily the politics it's just they've had an incredible chain of mentorship of kind of one winner having his protege who he's groomed to then win it the next year kind of thing um and in my experience all the judges have been super professional i mean obviously it's subjective sure. so just because they don't like your cocktail when somebody else did doesn't necessarily mean they have it out for you. It means their preferences are different. And that's something that you learn as you get more into it is you, you have to learn about your guest, whether it's in a competition or in a, in a bar setting. So whether you've seen them before or you Google them or whatever, it's like, okay, this person likes shaken refreshing drinks. I'm not going to make them an old fashioned rip uh, or things like that. Um, which is kind of what world-class taught me was to take it that one step further than, than what, you used to or what most people might think about that's actually interesting because it's kind of does in another way recreate the actual bar experience like we get yeah. to know get to know your judge get to know your guest right yeah like, exactly. uh, that's interesting uh so, so you just touched on something there as well like everybody's got a different power everybody has shit they like and shit they don't like how do you tailor a cocktail even like when you're working at the bar for instance, you can just ask the guests, what are you into? What are you not into? Right. Assuming you have the time and you're not just cranking that vodka. Yeah, exactly. but, like, uh, the, but if when you're at um, a competition, you don't know these people and you don't have time to talk to them. So how, like you said, you did a little research maybe or whatever, but how do you do yeah. that? Well, so, I mean, a lot of the people who judge these things are, are very well-known industry uh Figures. So they've done a lot of like podcasts or interviews or kind of things like that. So you can get a bit of an insight into their style and, and what they like by, by digging into that a bit. And then for something like World Class, which I've done three times now, you do get to know them a little bit from year to year because it's, it's the previous winners who are the judges every time with a couple guest judges. 
Um, so doing it more than once is an advantage, obviously, because you know them a little bit. Um, but yeah, like most people who judge these things have, have done a podcast or have done an interview or that kind of thing. So you're going to get at least a small amount of, uh, of insight. And then another thing that somebody recommended to me once was, uh, send them a message before the competition and ask about dietary restrictions. So that oh, if you yeah. like a peanut allergy, you're not giving them a peanut orgeat or something like that. Right. And then that opens the door for you to maybe try to squeeze a little bit more uh, information out of them. Out of them, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they tend to be pretty tight-lipped to try and keep it professional, but I mean, you, you can normally get a little tidbit or two. And how much of a factor do you feel like that sort of groundwork research going into it uh, like how how big a factor is that in how you what do in the competition? Do you think like? I mean, it definitely helps, and sometimes there's like a hair between competitors, so little yeah. things like that can help. Plus, I feel like often it'll give them sort of a positive, whether it's conscious or subconscious, a positive feeling towards you going in because they know that you you've laid that groundwork and that you you care about what you're yeah, doing. You give a shit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Um, Okay, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, um, because, just because you're clearly into craft cocktail, and we, we asked this question a few times on the show, talk, talk to me a little bit about, like, what do you think, go, obviously you've crafted a few cocktail lists, um, what, what goes into making a good list? Yeah, so I guess there's, there's different ways to approach it, depending on the style of spot you're in, obviously, like, some people go very thematic, um, for us, because we're sort of high volume, you really have to kind of cover all your bases. So like have your different categories, have your different styles, have something for people who like things that are refreshing and tropical, have something for people who like things that are stirred and boozy. Um, but not letting, trying to, to pursue that variety make you lose sight of what your kind of overarching intention or theme is for the menu. Uh, so you want to have something that ties it all together, even if the cocktails are kind of wildly divergent, um, which can be super tricky to do. Um, for me, a lot of the time, it's, it's that culinary kind of, not that I have a culinary background, but I have that kind of culinary way of looking at bartending. Um, so trying to use things that, that evoke food or the way dishes are put together um, or, or places or, or that kind of thing. And I'd really love to do a more thematic menu like that at some point in the future. Uh, right now, at Water Cocktail Club, it's just it's not really that style of place. Uh, it's high volume, so the drinks have to be top-notch, obviously, but you're, you're not getting quite as nerdy with it. Um, the guy friends who've done menus based around fermentation or based around uh, classic literature or whatever, which is really interesting to me. But we have to sort of go for a bit of a broader appeal. So I guess know your audience, um, cover, cover the different bases so that anybody who looks at that menu um, can find something that appeals to them and, and try to tell a story. Uh, I feel like the narrative side of it is, is what gets me going. I'm not that technical style of bartender who can tell you the exact uh, distilling methods and ABV and what 15 botanicals are in this gin, but I can probably tell you a story about the distillery or about somebody involved with the company or something like that. And I find to the average person, that's more interesting to them than, than the minute of, of how it's made. Story sells, man. I can't even, I can't agree with that more. Like and it, that goes for like a beer that you're serving them, a glass of wine, whatever. If you can tell your guest a story about whatever you're trying to sell them. It's like, do you think a fucking uh, at a car dealership that they say, oh, like 
they say you walk into a Porsche dealership, they're not just like, yeah, this car's from Europe. Like, yeah. no, they got they got something to tell you about, right? Yeah. Like, they got a story. So if you want to sell high end shit, you should have you need a story to back it up. And I always try to preach that to my staff as well. Like, if you if you're trying to sell a unusual high end glass of wine. Know the fucking story. Know who exactly. know who made it. Know what they put into it. Well, and like if I tell somebody the exact mash bill in a whiskey that they're trying, they're not going to remember that to the end of that drink. No. But if I tell them a story <laughs> about how the master distiller set aside a bunch of casts and then died and nobody knew what his plan for it was and then they had to experiment, that's the kind of thing that sticks with people and that they remember and, and want to come back and see you again for another story like that. Yeah, I remember at uh, my, uh, my first bar that... Um, we had this uh, wine on the list, and it was honestly, it was like I just didn't even like it. Was just not for me. So I, I was gonna say it's shit. It was not shit, but it was. Like, I would never drink it. But we yeah. needed to sell it, and um, I felt the, one of the stories of it was that they. It was one of those vineyards where they play classical music on speakers. Oh yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. but you tell somebody that. They're, they're hooked, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> even though you tell me that and I kind of roll my eyes a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. But like your, your average guest or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because I'm with you. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to do shit. But like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it appeals to a certain guest, you know? And yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, we are in the sales business. So. Well, big time. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that wine, though, because we have uh, 750 bottles on our back bar, give or take. <laughs> I saw your back bar. Uh, uh, yeah, not to, not to interrupt you, but holy shit, man. Your it, back bar is fucking gorgeous. It's spectacular. I, yeah. yeah. It, inventory is a nightmare. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but and, and so is maintaining it uh, because uh, in Quebec, it's a control state. So we have to get everything through the SAQ. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same in Ontario. Yeah, exactly. So like they'll just take staple products off or they'll get something in and we'll buy a case because we really love it and then it's never available again so you're with a list that big like basically every week i have to take things off the list add new things to, to keep your menu up to date is is a lot of work so are you putting like every single spirit on a menu for people yeah we have like a 15 page spirit oh, book kind of okay uh, i want to talk to you about that for a second just because you brought it up because i've struggled with this forever so my first bar was very similar we um we said, I'm not 100% sure if it's true, but I think we had the biggest back bar in Ontario. And um, now it's grown bigger, but the, like since I left, but they've also stocked it with like 16 kinds of flavors Smirnoff, 16 right. kinds of flavors Ciroc. Like that's just, that, there's no point to that. Like, yeah. <laughs> but like pick your vodka and get the flavors, whatever. But, yeah. um, but I struggled with, how like sometimes you're handing a bible to your guests and it's just information overload and i would find that they would just like start flipping through it's like you know what i'm just gonna have a beer or i'm just gonna have a vodka soda or whatever right so how do you how do you deal with that yeah well so the spirit list is separate from the menu um and basically we give it upon request so if somebody says they want a a gin or or a vodka or whiskey or whatever uh, either they want to straighten or cocktail we'll try to sort of suss out what their preferences are a little bit so we can make a few recommendations uh and then if they want to take a look at the list we'll, we'll pull it out for them mm-hmm. uh, um but we try to kind of guide them so it's not as intimidating and really the vast majority of people take a recommendation rather than 
perusing this list. Yeah, they, but it's uh, good to have it, I guess, right? Because exactly. there are there are certain people like like for instance, like you or me. If we walk into a bar, we probably have like we know enough about liquor that we know what we're looking for. So mm -hmm. for us, the list is valuable to have. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're not looking for a recommendation. We know what we want. But for yeah. your average guest, they want you to suggest something to them, right? Well, exactly. And often, like somebody will order an old fashioned, and I'll be like, "Do you have a preference for your whiskey with that?" And they'll be like, "Well, what do you have?" And I'm like, "Well, about 120. Uh, I can uh, I can narrow that down for you, or I have a list you can look at." Um, and it depends how busy I am. Sometimes you just chuck the list at them and go to something else. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I was chatting with the guy who, um, do you, are you familiar with uh, Bartender Atlas? Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm listed on there. Yeah, okay, good. I'm glad you signed up. So, I like, he is the guy who runs that and his wife um, are, are very good friends with a, an excellent wine rep that we have. They're based out of Toronto. And he was in my bar the other day, and we were chatting about... Sorry, the Josh, right? Josh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, and he's going to be on the. We got him booked on the program, so he's going to be coming on a little bit later into into the new year because people want to be on the show. It's great, fucking <laughs> great. Yeah, um, but uh, anyway, he. Um, we were chatting about this uh, notion of like what makes a good bar and a great bar and whatever. And we and one of the things he mentioned was that like some of these people places that make the list, and this ties back into the bar you're working at currently, but like some of these people who make the list, like it's like, okay, are they what what like what are the factors that they're are the categories that they're going to 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 say, okay, this bar's got it all covered. And his whole website is based on the notion that they don't bring the service enough into that equation. So what we were talking about, and we were talking about like Places that you go, and he I, I, he was mentioning some place he went to that was listed on one of these best bars, and uh, he said something like, "Oh, he asked for a daiquiri or a margarita or something," and then he asked what, and and the bartender did not ask what if it was a daiquiri, what rum you want, or if it was a yeah. margarita, because I just can't remember what he said, what tequila you want, or whatever, which I think is the base of what you're supposed to be fucking doing. Yeah. Well, and it lets you upsell, right? Like, yeah. if you're pumping out rail, that's not good for the business. <laughs> oh, man, I used to drill that into my staff. Like, this is the whole point. Like, yeah, they can have the rail shit, but sell them on the expensive yeah, stuff, exactly. right? Yeah, and so he was saying, oh, the bartender was like, Oh, uh, I was just going to use the rail. Is that a problem? And he's like, right away, he's like, this is not one of the best bars. No, like, exactly. Because the service you're getting is not up to snuff. And so I would like to, I'm interested in your opinion on that. Do you feel that, I, I'm sure that the service at your bar is impeccable, but like, do you feel like that's sometimes not factored in enough? Yeah, I, I like to think that they take kind of the, the whole experience into consideration um, because there's definitely bars on the list uh, below us who are have a more technical uh, cocktail program than us that are better than us in, in certain ways. But we really try to be, to some extent at least, kind of a neighborhood bar with that. Uh, we've got our regulars that come in or are hospitable with everybody. And I think my my background on the East Coast, Halifax is is kind of renowned and the East Coast in general for that hospitality um, and that uh, trying to make sure that everybody has a great experience uh, kind of ethos. Um, but you really do have to be careful with 
accolades like that top three or top five or whatever and we've had to drill into our staff like look top three doesn't mean okay we get to chill and be cocky now top three means that there's two more people below us that are coming for us next year and it means we need to continue to step it up right Um, and it means people are going to be coming from elsewhere in the country elsewhere in the world to see what we're doing that's gotten us on that list and, and we can't disappoint them we have to maintain those standards yeah um, yeah, I agree. And I, and I, I just want to give a quick shout out to Josh from Bartender Atlas. If you are listening, hopefully you are that I personally think what they're doing is great. Um, it's, and, and, and if you're a bartender out there and you're listening right now, sign up, sign up for Bartender Atlas. It's a shout out for Josh and Matt Wu. If you're listening also come on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, that, that's, uh, that's an aside. This, this is about you. Yeah. This is about you, <laughs> not about my friends. <laughs> okay, so uh, I want to get into a little bit more about now that we're at, at, at back, we circled around and started talking about Atwater. Um, talk to us about the whole concept of Atwater, um, what you've learned since you've been there. And I know you, you moved up pretty quickly, but like, what, what effect are you trying to have on something that's obviously a well-renowned and amazing place? Yeah, so I guess um, now that I've sort of gotten the management side under control, I don't really feel like I'm just trying to keep my head above water anymore. Uh, I want to push the cocktail program forward, uh, so find ways to execute more technical, more elaborate cocktails in a high-volume setting. Um, So the the laws prevent us from really doing much batching of spirits. Uh, Sorry, uh, expand on that if you don't mind. This is a provincial law? Yeah, so the Quebec provincial law, we're not allowed to batch spirits. Uh, well, up until very recently, we weren't allowed to batch spirits at all. Um, now you can batch your spirits, but you have to throw the batch down the drain at the end of every day, which what? is essentially saying that you can't do it because right. you work to do that. Hey, uh, uh, quick question first, for those who don't know, what does batch spirits mean? Yeah, so like, let's say I'm making a cocktail that's got uh, one sweet element, one sour element, and then three different spirits, or like a spirit, a liqueur, and a fortified wine or something like that. I would put the alcohol, alcoholic ingredients together in one bottle in the proper ratio, so that when I'm making my cocktail, instead of having to pull five, six bottles, I can pull three bottles and, and put it out faster. Right. Um, so for our more kind of tiki, uh, tropical-style cocktails, we started batching our non-alcoholic ingredients to take them from, like, nine bottle pulls to four or five. Um, and then finding that balance between shaken and stirred as well. We did a menu change a while back where we had pulled a bunch of stirred cocktails off the menu and added uh, shaken cocktails. And I started re- to realize the, the ticket times were getting out of control. And I was like, what changed? Like, why is this suddenly becoming a problem? And I was like, oh, well, it's all out of balance. We have four shakers on each well and two mixing glasses. If there's a nice balance of shaken and mixed, I can make six, to- six cocktails at a time. But if it's all shaken, I'm down to four. Uh, as well as the fact that the, the stirred ones, I can basically build that, throw it on ice, build the rest of my shaken round shake everything up, give it a couple quick stirs, taste it for dilution and send it out. So it allows you to be more efficient when you've got that, that nice balance of, of ways of putting your cocktails together. Gotcha. That's really interesting. I, I don't think I've ever thought about that, but where, but you're completely right. Cause you can, if you can, yeah, like you're literally limited by the equipment you have there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you only have two hands. So 
Well, exactly. Well, I'm a barback, so I like to think I have four hands. <laughs> okay. A really good barback is like an extra set of hands. Oh, talk to me about that for a little bit. Let's, honestly, like how how vital, you know, place that um, is doing the kind of turnover and the sort of rush for cocktails at a place that you, like, like, when you're at full strength, let's say, mm-hmm. like let's take COVID out of it, um, when you're like really cranking out cocktails, how valuable is like a great barback? Oh, it's, it's incredible. And and we really try to train and, and promote internally. So we take people from dishwasher to busboy to barback to bartender. Uh, I mean, it takes a while, but uh, we actually very, very rarely hire bartenders. Um, even if they have a decent amount of bartending experience, we'll start them at barback because it's, it's a different kind of bar. It's a different kind of service. There's a lot of moving parts to learn. Um, so I, I really like that kind of training side of, of being able to mentor somebody and bring them up. But uh, when we're in full service at capacity of about 95 people, um, we'll have two wells running with a bartender and a bar back on each well. So you're kind of working in two two-person teams. Uh, so that bar back is your extra set of hands there. And we train them to anticipate everything. So they're looking at the chits or glasswares in front of you before you even start building the cocktails. They're keeping your eyes full. They're grabbing you uh, the, the sort of clear ice that you need for your various cocktails, pulling bottles off the back bar, putting them back. Um, and I had never actually worked with a bar back before coming to ACC. Now, if they're gone for 10 minutes having a smoke or eating or something and we get rushed, it frustrates me so much. Oh, I know. that You get used to it, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's yeah, like, yeah. And It's not that I can't do it without it, but I can do it so much more efficiently right. with, with that help. That the, the way the team's put together, it, it, it really makes things run smoothly. Yeah, I've been in that situation where you're just like, where the fuck is he? And then yeah, you just kind of exactly. like, wait, okay, okay, he's allowed to take a piss. Yeah. <laughs> calm down, calm down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to die if they wait an extra minute. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about that for a second, actually, because this is something that I try and get across to my staff all the time as well. Because I'm always like, just, you can only, you know how people who get overstressed at work and they just start losing their shit? Because yeah. what we do, and I think certainly if anyone's listening to this podcast who has never done a job in the service industry like recognize that we're doing 15 things at one time and if we get busy then that doubles so yeah. so you've got it, a like, list in your head the whole time and the priorities of that list are shifting so you're moving things up the list moving things down it's, right it's, and, if you're good at it yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah. if you're not then that's i don't even know how people stay in it but <laughs> i guess the money but <laughs> but uh it, like that idea that like you're you're so you're doing all these things at once you're and you're trying to you're just trying to get through like this 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 sort of busyness like talk to me a little bit about like well like what's your checklist a little bit about how yeah so i mean i guess in terms of like ticket times and that kind of thing if the drinks aren't coming out fast enough, I see that as my problem mm-hmm. um, because the system isn't right to be able to put them out fast enough. Um, so I always try to tell my people, my, my team, like, no matter how busy you are, you are, that quality of service is number one. So, like, if I come in and they are getting rocked, um, but there's, like, empty water glasses on the bar and, like, balled up napkins kind of trailing around and the bar doesn't look proper and professional. I'm like, I don't care if somebody waits an extra minute. Yes. Do with that. We'll figure out the ticket times later um, because if people are in a dirty, unpleasant environment and they're waiting for their drinks, 
That's not good. No. Uh, If if they have water in front of them, they feel taken care of, and they see how busy you are, they tend to be a little bit more patient. Okay, so how I know, despite your accolades, how I know you know what the fuck you're doing in your job is through this conversation is because you just touched on so many of the things that matter to me so much. Like, it's okay. People will wait a minute or two for a drink Mm -hmm. if if what the, the level of service they're getting is proper. Right, mm-hmm. like and, and elevated, like that. You're okay, people. They're wait. It's just a drink. It's just a drink. They can wait. But it's, yeah. it's, you know, yeah. like let's make sure it's done properly. And also, the other thing you said about how just recognize their presence. Exactly. First and foremost, like it's, people will wait forever. Well, not forever, but you know what I mean. Like for a long time, if you've at least recognized that they're there. Yeah. Exactly. And. So we, we, I mean, we, we do focus on the ticket times. Our, our goal is seven minute ticket times and in a full blown rush, that is absolutely a challenge. Sure. But, uh, but I, I, like, like I said before, if, if we're not hitting that, even with two bartenders, two bar backs on and everything, that's a, that's a system problem. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I need to go and look at the menu, look at the, the mise en place, look at something so that we can fix that. It's not an excuse to, to slack on, on standards of service. Okay, so let's talk about that for a little, uh, for a hot second here. Like the, when you're talking about ticket times, do you, how important do you think that is? Because I've been to several bars in my life where their whole thing is like, you're here, this is a high-end craft cocktail bar. You might wait 25 minutes to a half an hour for a drink because that's what we fucking do here. Like, mm-hmm. what, talk to me about the balance of that, like of like getting a high-quality product or a ticket time, like, what do you think is the most important thing? Yeah, well, I mean, again, just like anything else, it kind of depends on the concept of the bar. For us, we're not the kind of place where people expect or are willing to wait 25 minutes for a drink. Our drinks aren't so complex and nerdy that when they come to the table, it looks like they should have taken 25 minutes to make. Okay. I mean, some of, them, some of them are elaborate. Like, we have ones that come under cloches full of smoke and all sorts of stuff like that. But uh, just the atmosphere, like... From our playlist, our lighting, to our decor, everything lends itself to a bit more of a kind of raucous, high energy, high volume kind of environment. So you can't really get away with that 25 minute wait for for drinks. People expect to be served. They're they're there to hang out with their friends and to socialize as much as they are there to drink a a fancy cocktail. Um, So we do have to stay on top of it. Um, Do you think there's ever a place that should be waiting the day where you should be waiting for 25 minutes to get a cocktail like is that should that even be a thing uh, not really i mean maybe some like there's places like the aviary in chicago where yeah. it's like michelin star crazy molecular restaurant yeah. kind of thing like if it takes a team of seven people to make to, your cocktail, to, to yeah. cocktail together <laughs> line, and i'm paying 150 dollars for it and it's gonna change my outlook on on life the world and everything okay maybe okay, uh, I, I have something to say about the aviary just since you brought it up because i mean i've been there it's fucking awesome to, but I also, there's a, a bartender, I don't want to call him out here, who, but who works locally here, who went and did an massage there. Um, yeah. And he didn't feel like he learned that fucking much from like the... Well, I think it's also that Michelin star mentality, right? Where like stages are basically just slave labor. Like they, That's it. they, yeah. you, they don't really teach you much. They make you do the shit work, like peeling grapes and potatoes. You do that for 18 hours a day <laughs> until you want to... Yeah. And they're like, okay, go home. <laughs> 
Okay, um, so that's interesting to talk about as well, though, because like I think <laughs> you're right, and I think that like that is what probably happens there. Like you're just kind of the dishwasher for them after a while. But like uh, that's also the case of Tales of the Cocktail, right? Um, and we had Levi Vixie on. Uh, are you familiar with him? Nope. Levi Vixie. I don't think so. Oh, I'm surprised. I, I kind of thought he might have run in. You might have run into him in your circles, but he also does competitive bartending. But he he was um, uh, I can't remember what the colors of the coats are, but I think white coat at the oh yeah the, the caps program. Yeah, it tells the cocktail and for and that's what he said. He was essentially just doing prep work for these famous bartenders but he found it extremely valuable so i don't know what the balance is like yeah we had a bar uh, a bar back who did the caps program and he thought it was incredible i mean i think largely for networking purposes but also in that kind of a setting because they're prepping for like a specific event or something like that you get to sort of see this the whole process from start to finish a little bit more uh whereas in a in a place like the aviary i imagine it's it's very much division of labor each person has a, a kind of small portion of the final product that they need to do so you don't really get that holistic picture and, and how it all works together mm-hmm. um, but i mean anytime you can work with somebody who's passionate and has more uh more experience than you i, I think it's a great opportunity uh, as long as they're at least somewhat invested in, in passing that knowledge on to you. Yeah, it's kind of like how they talk about playing tennis, right? Where it's like you only get better if you play with somebody who's better than you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so uh, what's well? Here's a couple, a couple questions. What is your go-to cocktail? Daiquiri, hands down. To drink. That's yes. your thing. Yeah, yeah. No shit. Okay. Yeah, I'm a big rum guy. I, I love the simplicity of it. I love how. It's more technique-driven than ingredient-driven. Um, I do something weird with my daiquiris. I uh, reverse dry shake them. So uh, a, a bar, I learned it from a bartender in Halifax, and it just it aerates it. So I, I don't know if you've heard about the trend for, like, fluffy citrus or, like, fluffy no, or whatever. I actually want you to walk me through everything you just said. So okay. just for some... <laughs> I, I, I know about, about a bunch of what you just said. I don't know what the, about the last part that you just said, but I guarantee a lot of our listeners don't know anything of yeah, so there's been this trend in the last little bit for towards fluffy citrus. So basically, you take your orange juice or your lime juice or whatever and put it in a blender or like a Vitamix on high for a few seconds, and it just fluffs it up and aerates it. So it gives you about double the volume and this really light kind of mouthfeel. And then as the air escapes, all the uh, aromatics are in that air, so it's popping up out of the top of the cocktail. Oh, cool. Um, the yeah. technique for the daiquiri is you basically shake it on ice, Fine strain it back into your tin, dump the ice, and then shake it as hard as you fucking can for a few seconds uh, before pouring it into the glass. And it gives you like an extra half inch of volume. And then that first sip is just like insanely vibrant because you're getting that fresh oh, really? and everything popping up into your face. It's so, though. My beverage director hates that I do it. And I'm like, well, I don't care. I like it. <laughs> honestly, that sounds fucking delicious to me. The, yeah. uh, now, would you still pour that on ice or? No, uh, up. Typically, I mean, you uh, could, but I, I always serve a daiquiri up. Yeah, you do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and what is your so if you're making that daiquiri, you describe the process. What's the rum you? What's your go-to rum for that? My go-to rum right now uh, is the Barbecue Blanc. Um, I really like kind of funky agricole uh, style I, rum. I haven't tried that. We have a couple of co. Like my bar is a rum bar. Uh, yeah. So it's totally rum forward. Every, all the cocktails are rum. We have like a high-end 
um, rum back bar, but mm-hmm. uh, I, and we have barbecue, but I haven't tried the agricole. Yeah, well, so like a lot of, uh, I mean, before I discovered that, my go-to was Savannah 3. Um, it's kind of like the, the benchmark for a daiquiri. Um, and, and people do argue that like something like the barbecue and agricole, those grassy kind of notes can, can take over uh, the simplicity of the cocktail and sure. overpower the two other elements where they're all supposed to be in perfect balance. But like, I think probably with the possible exception of Chinar, Ran Nephew Overproof is like my all-time favorite bottle. Uh, I keep it in a dasher and I add it to like virtually everything with fruit juice in it. Uh, <laughs> that hogo, that, that kind of funky overripe fruit notes uh, just to sort of get me going. So it's just personal preference. So uh, the other thing I try to ask uh, people on the show, um, if you're going to a bar and you just want to test whether this bar knows how to make cocktails or whether you should just get a Heineken, uh, what what would be the the cocktail you would test them on? Probably daiquiri again, to be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, if that's your go-to cocktail, then that's it, right? Well, that and it's just there's, there's nothing to hide behind, right? There's three ingredients that you have to balance properly. If they can balance a daiquiri, they can probably balance whatever else they're making. Hmm. Um, I feel like the more complicated a cocktail gets, the, the more there is to hide behind. Um, so something simple like a, a daiquiri, a martini, a uh, Manhattan Old Fashioned, yeah. uh, something that, that's very simple and just has to be executed properly, I think gives you a good benchmark on, on what kind of bartender you're sitting across from. Yeah, I agree with you. That's uh, I've been just, Everyone's heard this on the show a million times by now, Wait, if anyone's listening. But the... <laughs> the um, yeah. The, for me, it's always the Black Manhattan. I, I feel like I should be getting a Verno Amaro sponsorship at some point. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so for me, it's that. It's like, yeah, but it has to be, if you're going to test a bartender, you're not going to test them on like a fucking zombie or some shit like that. Well, where, like, exactly. yeah, it's got to be a simplistic three ingredient, mostly liquor forward yeah. cocktail, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Averna. I actually was in Italy uh, with Campari doing this uh, Amari Club tour uh, in October last year. So we visited the Averna Distillery, uh, the Browlet, or not Distillery, but the uh, Averna facility uh, in Sicily. Then they brought us up to uh, Formio in the Alps to check out Braulio. And we finished in Milan with uh, Chinar. So it was 10 days. Crisscrossed Italy. I think I slept maybe maybe eighteen hours the entire ten ten days. They they had us on a tight schedule, but it was it was a blast. That's amazing, man. I'm so into Amaro. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I went but, to a place in Burlington, Vermont, where they had they did Amaro flight. Mm-hmm. And it was oh, fucking cool. amazing, man. Like just like and they did it from like the sweet to the bitter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. The funny thing about that, though, was like I, I visited like uh, rum distilleries, different sort of things like that, and they're keen to tell you like every step of the process and how it all works. Amaro is very, very secretive. So oh, they want they'll you to tell you the technique of how it's made, but their secret recipe is a secret recipe, and they like take your phones when you go into the room and are like, no pictures. They're like, and this is another room of things I can't tell you about. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> so yeah. the tour isn't so much. You're just waiting for the end when they give you the tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. I think, uh, like, thanks so much for hanging out with us and doing this. Uh, uh, you've got a really interesting story to tell, and I'm, I'm as soon as we're allowed to travel again dan and i are already talking about coming to your joint so yeah i just want to sit on those gold couches man those look yeah spectacular. i know they're really cool, right 
<laughs> we actually switched those over from pink to chrome a while back, but now we've got these LED lights in the ceiling that you can change the color on. So the oh, is that what's doing it? Whatever light you set the, the lights to. So oh. we can make them green, we can make them blue. Oh, so it's it's color. Kinda, yeah, it's pretty cool. That's amazing, man. Yeah. Well, I like honestly, you're fucking your bar is gorgeous. Just yeah, what we're it seeing online. Spectacular. And I can tell anyone who's listening right now clearly. Thomas knows what the fuck he's doing, so yeah. <laughs> probably the cocktails are on point, and you're going to get amazing service, so go see Thomas if you're in the Montreal area, and uh, I know I'm going to, so <laughs> yeah. thanks Yeah, thanks a lot for doing this, man. And if you're to... Thank you guys, it was a blast. Yeah, thank you, and if everyone gets a hold of you on Instagram or whatnot, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so it's uh, thomas.b.tending, uh, Thomas B. Tending. Uh, I used to have B's my middle initial, uh, so it used to be Thomas.B.Yo, and then I re- realized that sounded like Thomas B.O., and that's not the best. So I switched it to, to Thomas B. Tending. Bartending, he's tending, whatever. But uh, yeah, Thomas with a TH, and uh, that's how you can find me. Perfect. I'll put that down in the notes. Thanks a lot, Thomas. You're a good dude. Thanks, Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Cheers.